Hey, Fresh Capital listeners. In this episode, we are diving into a company with a lot of mystique behind it, Palantir. The name is well known in tech circles, but its operations less so, with an enviable client list including the likes of the CIA Palantir provides essential data tools for both private companies and governments. Albert and I disagree on which way Palantir is trending, so stay tuned to understand the hype behind the company. If you haven't already, rate us five stars in your app. We really appreciate you helping us grow. As always, keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn about companies and investing. My name is Dan, and as always, joining me is Albert. Albert, how are you doing? Dan, I'm a bit dusty. I had a a big night last night, so I'm feeling it now. I don't know if you can see me drinking my Gatorade. (laughs) I can. You're a a blue Gatorade person for the listeners out there. Uh, I don't know what that says about you, Augustus Gloop, or or what. Just says I'm a big fan of the uh, the Blue Bolt. Um, How are you going? I'm doing well. I'm excited to get into this week's company. It's a little bit different from what we usually do, I guess. Like It's still tech of a sort, but... It's definitely playing in a space that we don't usually talk about. You've had your eye on Palantir for a while now, Albert. What what first got you interested in Palantir? Where did you first hear about it? Yeah, Palantir is one of those companies that have emerged from the PayPal mafia. You know, Peter Thiel, um, you know, famously involved with Palantir. And so it's got this aura around it. It's got a cool product name called Gotham. And so given the the celebrity status of the people involved with Palantir, given the product, it's always been one of those shadow tech companies that you hear a bit about in the media, but don't don't really get a chance to look into. So I'm pretty excited we get to talk about Palantir today because it's really forced me to, and forced you to, to think about this business that kind of operates in the shadows. It does. And to give the listeners some context on this sort of shadowy mythology that, that surrounds Palantir, Palantir provides organizations with solutions to manage large data sets in in an attempt to gain insights uh, into those data sets that would drive particular outcomes. Sounds very, very vague, but you sort of have to understand that they're particularly used in government intelligence and defense sectors. And part of the mythology that is Palantir is that you know, they can neither confirm nor deny if their software was used by the CIA and uh, American author- authorities to uh, help in finding and killing Osama bin Laden. So that's sort of that shadowy mythology that we talk about there, where this is a somewhat secretive tech company, which really provides useful services towards particularly government agencies uh, to address some pressing issues in the world. And I think it's best to give an example of their product. So this comes from one of their demonstrations back in 2011. So they've progressed since then, but I think the core features or structure of this example really illustrates what they do. You know, imagine that you've got a, a terrorist who's roaming around uh, a particular state of a country like Florida They've bought one-way plane tickets. They've rented out a condo. 
they've made some bank withdrawals, they've made phone calls to uh, a country somewhere else in the world. The security cam footage of this individual walking around Disney World, taken separately, all of these bits of data are siloed. You know, the banks aren't talking to the airlines who aren't talking to the condo rental place. But if you've got a government institution, which depending on certain rules, regulations and laws, can accrue these different data sets, and maybe it's just somewhere in the organisation, Palantir's software helps tie together all these separate instances, all these separate pieces of data to help connect them and have an agent essentially identify, here's a person living at point X who's planning to perform an attack at Florida Disney World. That's the power that they present to investors. That's the power of Palantir is it can take all these different bits of data and using its particular AI, artificial intelligence, it can sort and link them so that normal people, normal agents can sort of make insights from that data, which will have particular outcomes, in this case, stopping an attack. So really important, really complex, but also super interesting. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a really great example, Dan, to give colour to what Palantir um, do. I think the other thing I, w- I would add to that is, you know, well, what Palantir, I mean, this sounds really great, like you connect a bunch of different data sets, you know, you can build relationships between data and have someone sit and, and manage it and, and look for patterns. I think the next kind of level that Palantir enables you to do is then build models around those data sets to then do scenario testing or what they call what if analysis to understand if something changes, how does that look like? You know, if this terrorist who's on the run in Florida, they've bought this ticket, what if they buy a ticket to, you know, say Dallas or what if they fly overseas or or what if Disneyland closes for one day? Like how, how do we respond to that? Which then enables them to understand what is the optimum activity to take in order to catch this terrorist. So it not only gives you insights around, you know, the different data sets and how you build relationships between them, but then also helps you build optimized actions to address what information you've managed to uncover by connecting different data sets. I'll give two more examples just to sort of take us into different contexts so that, you know, the listeners can understand that this isn't just uh, defense and national security. Uh, One of the other instances of their use is there's been uh, big investment banks like Chase, uh, like JP Morgan, who have used Palantir to, it seems a bit strange to say it, but somewhat sort of like spying on their employees just to understand whether they're conducting fraudulent transactions, insider trading, these sorts of things. So it can be used by organizations to, you know, track a particular employee might be opening up Word, doing these sorts of things, might be browsing the internet, looking up YouTube videos. Just think of everything that you might do at your day at work. It can track all those instances of data because most uh, professional surface workplaces now, they give you a laptop, which gives them incredible insight to basically everything that you do on that laptop during the day. Palantir now as a software can sell to these particular companies and say, we can get these insights from your employees, in this case, it's relation to, to fraud. Uh, but uh, interestingly enough, I think there was 
uh, a case of misuse at one of these banks where basically the, the boss was using it to spy on these employees in an untoward way. Um, but yeah, you can really drive some of these insights from this software in a commercial setting as well. And then the other example I'll give, and this is, I think relates to some of the image issues that Palantir has that we'll probably get into a little bit later, Albert. Uh, it is used by essentially the Immigration and Custom uh, Enforcement Agency in America, that's ICE. And so a big criticism of Palantir is that you know it can use all this data to find connections and links. And one of its core offerings to a particular government agency in America is to find uh, illegal migrants and then have them deported. So you know, a lot of use cases, depending who you are, where you come from, you might not always think them as good use cases though. Yeah, I think um, what you've described are really surveillance use cases that's associated with different government clients. And I just want to point out that Palantir is not a surveillance software. Like it's not software that's specifically used to monitor terrorists or specifically use to monitor, you know, as a bank, what your employees are doing on your computer. It, it's effectively a data analysis tool that connects different pieces of information together that helps you build relationships. And then using those relationships then helps you construct models, understand how those relationships interplay out. And obviously the use case for government is doing monitoring and the use case for bank is, you know, monitoring your customers and activity for say, uh, you know, uh, money laundering or um, illegal activity or monitoring your employees for, you know, potential trading or cybersecurity risks. Um, but there's kind of really broader use cases. So if we kind of zoom up a bit there, they've got two sets of customers and for each customer set, they've got a particular product. So Dan, what you've described is their Gotham product, which is the product they sell predominantly to governments. They've also got a product called Foundry. It's very similar to what Gotham does, connects different data sets that are siloed, helps you then build relationships. Um, but Foundry, given um, it sells to predominantly what they call uh, commercial customers, so corporates, enterprises, etc., cetera, um, has a pretty wide range of use cases. Um, some corporates use it for carbon monitoring, some corporates use it to do pharmaceutical development. I'm just going to kind of walk through an example from Ferrari because they actually use it to optimize their cars. So if you think of a car, beautiful car, Ferrari, high performance racing vehicle, there's all these different parts to the car, the wheels, the, um, obviously I don't drive very often because I'm now struggling to find an example there. So, you know, the, the steering wheel, the wheels, all the different dials, um, how quickly the car can go, all the different parts of the engine. Ferrari installed sensors, about a thousand sensors on a car to understand all the different components of how the vehicle operates together when drivers using it and then manages to collect this data from the sensors. And then from there, they then built models to understand based on all this data, how does this car actually interplay from a data perspective? So they've replicated the performance of a Ferrari but using a data model to then understand how do we make this car go faster or how do we make this car turn better? So by changing different aspects of their model car in their Palantir software, Foundry, they can then build a digital Ferrari using data to understand what is the best possible car we can make in order to win races? So uh, the power of what Palantir do, particularly for corporate clients, 
is it enables them to build models using siloed data through relationships that they can identify. Yeah, and, and to give an idea on some of these models, because uh, I remember early on when I started investing, when I, I heard of models, I generally thought of you know an Excel spreadsheet, maybe a bit of a line graph for being uh, complicated on things. Uh, but really, it's I think of a model, Albert, and you can help me out here. It's, it's basically just sort of like any uh, tool that helps visualize and uh, yeah, consider particular forms of data. And so to that end, going back to their Gotham product, they've got just sort of a regular sort of graph which can filter the data, allows objects to be seen in sort of a logical, visual manner. Uh, so the listener can't see now, but I'm looking at some of the pictures of it. it. Sort of looks a little bit like a firework where you've got sort of a larger node or circle in the center, and then you've got all of these little lines branching off of it, which shows links between different sets of data and different data points. Um, it can obviously be overlaid onto a map. So if we go back to that sort of terrorist example I mentioned, you know, you could have a map of Florida and have all the data points for particular um, data sets relating to an individual sort of pop up so you can see how someone's traveling around a certain area. Um, you can also have just sort of like a regular browser, which it's really quite interesting. They can turn all these separate data points into something that you can browse for like you're sort of on Google or something else. And this is something I think we talked about with um, with Nuix, which is this idea that you might have photos of things which are colored red or blue or whatever. And to be able to analyze that data so you can search red and then red photos will actually show up is something that requires an algorithm to search through all these photographs, note that there's a particular color involved there, and then associate that with the actual word red. So there's a whole lot of complicated back-end stuff that needs to go into that, and Palantir's done a great job of figuring it out. Albert, we've talked a lot about the product, but if you look at the general sort of marketplace, are you bullish on where Palantir are positioned? We mentioned they've got a bit of a commercial and government mix there. How do you see all that playing out? Yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity for Palantir. So, uh, like I said, we talked about a lot about the product from a monitoring or dashboarding perspective. But what, what the power of the product actually is, is it enables you to build models of something in real life using data that's available to understand how you optimize for that. Like, that, that's super broad. But to build a, a model of a Ferrari using data is very hard to do for anyone like you can't do that in excel to do that in other complicated data systems like tableau or alteryx um, or splunk which are the dashboarding and data tools is very difficult because you need to build the machine learning component and so what and the power of what um palantir are ultimately trying to move towards is how you enable um corporates to build ai based models easily and so when I look at, you know, what they're doing and moving away from government and starting to over-index or push further into commercial customers, I think they see the opportunity that big data has right now. And they see that trying to analyze lots of data sets is difficult and customers in the commercial space need to do that. And Palantir positioned pretty well um, to do that. So I think this is where 
Albert and I really sort of diverged, as we discussed before we started recording. I think on one view, you could say Palantir's move to commercial clients is a really smart, necessary pivot. Uh, when you think of the market size of a particular industry, if you only focus on government clients, naturally you're going to limit yourself and the amount of customers you can have. While in theory it's great to expand it out to commercial customers, you now have a bit of a execution challenge, which is now you're trying to provide your software, your service to two sort of different sorts of companies. They're not completely different, but they've got sort of different needs, different operating procedures and the like. And now that my main concern for Palantir is I see their product as being quite bespoke. Like you can start off with this Gotham or this Foundry product, but when we talk about really getting the particular insights that you want as a company, when I install Foundry at the Department of Immigration and Customs in, in America, there's going to be a very different onboarding and installation process than when Palantir goes into Ferrari's office and installs the product there for use, as you said, for sort of modeling a car. And that takes time, it takes costs, it takes data engineers to really make a bespoke, I don't know why I said it separately, bespoke package for a company. And I just worry that that's not a sustainable, scalable approach and that over time we're just going to see them struggle to get customers because they've hedged their bets too much, they've divided their focus. Yeah, so um, yeah, we do disagree on this point and... The reason why I disagree is the first is for any major enterprise business where data is heavily involved, you're going to need a pretty heavy lift on the onboarding phase. And that's true for so many huge successful SaaS companies, Oracle, Workday, Salesforce, etc. You know, unfortunately, you can't service enterprise without having a pretty big professional services lift at the start of it. And part of that is so that they, you can onboard them correctly. But the other part of that is so that they know how to use the software and that come renewal time, they'll say like, yeah, I know how to use the software because you've taught me, therefore I'm going to renew. And so Palantir have a three-stage sales process. Um, the first stage is called acquire, where they look to get new customers or expand use cases in existing customers. And here they just they implement for free. So they come in and say, you've got all this data. We think um, this is what you can do with it. And then this is how you then leverage our software to build models or develop insights. So they, they do this for free. The, the second stage, um, they then expand. You know, they've signed this customer now that they've seen how it works. You know, use it, they're getting them um, building more models, using it more successfully. And then the third is scale and scales where they really start to expand within existing customers, how much they're using it. And over time for every cohort that goes through this process, by the time they get to scale, they're generating more revenue for Palantir. Now I'm trying to find the exact statistic here um, that's come from Palantir, but they talk about this funnel and in the first phase, they're generating like less than $100,000 per customer. But by the last phase, you know, they're generating upwards of multiple millions of dollars from a customer. And each year, 
those customers in each of those cohorts actually increase the revenue. So because they've taken the time to go through a heavy lift process, it's actually led to a lot more success in how their customers use it, but also success in how much money these um, customers are paying Palantir. Yeah, I think I've seen some analysts give what I think is quite a good analogy for how you should view Palantir, which is they're not like a... I don't know, they're not, they're not like a, a SaaS business where they're just looking to generate leads and sell and then once they've sold it, they try and generate a new lead and sell again. So in that way, you know, if you're looking at some of the metrics of Palantir, they've got about 170 customers. That's not the metric you want to look at. It's not a volume game per se. You're not looking at the total amount of customers Palantir has. Their sales approach, as you've set out, Albert, is... Almost like if you're a consultant or you're a lawyer or a professional service um, operator, you find a client, you provide them a service, sometimes you discount your rates or whatever, you build that relationship, and then before your job ends, you sort of mention, oh, can we help you out with this other aspect of your business that looks like, you know, needs some legal advice, needs some consultancy strategy work. And then the client might say yes, and you're starting to build out this relationship where you're getting more and more work out of a particular client. And this is you know, particularly prevalent with government clients as well, as you might say, what about your, your friends in the other department? They, they're doing similar things to you. Can we help them out with what we just helped you out with? And you really sort of worm your way into an organization, expand out your services, and the next thing you know, the government is providing you more and more work. So it's a tried and true uh, business sales approach. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. My sort of concern, though, is it just seems to be so slow, Albert. <laughs> They've been around for a while. They've got some particularly heavy hitter government clients like the army, like some of these departments that we've mentioned, the CIA, etc. But what I'm failing to see is like, what what do you expect out of this, Albert? Do you expect there to be a point where there's ever something resembling exponential growth or is this just going to be a slow and steady trend upward or in my view it might actually be a trend downward as they just sort of plateau, hit all the people they can sell to and, and then they sort of they can't go anywhere else? So are you asking whether do I see revenue growth or how, how quickly they implement? So... With any software business, you're trying to measure what you call time to value. It's like, how quickly can your customer get value? And given how much data onboarding is required for Palantir software, the reason they sell for free to begin with through their acquire phase is because it positions them as Palantir and as software experts to quickly show their customer or prospective customer how to leverage the product. In the same way that if you, say, downloaded Notion, you know, that's super easy to use. There's no data configuration. I don't need to link my Notion account to Excel or, you know, Word or whatever to, to get existing pieces of information. Time to value is really, really quick. And time to value is often really quick for a lot of commercial, uh, for, for all consumer software. You know, you download Word, you can start typing straight away. For enterprise software that requires data, time to value is often really slow. And so what they've done is they've circumvented that time to value by first building models for a customer. So when you talk about um, 
you know, whether there is, is going to be exponential growth, what you would need to believe is within government, they're always going to do that because government is immature. They don't have the right capabilities. There's all these data privacy requirements. You know, implementation's hard. You, they don't deploy um, in the cloud for government. They deploy on-premise, which then takes time. But for their commercial clients, because they're often more mature with their data, they've got more systems, they've got people in place, that, that's going to scale upwards and that they can configure products that are easier to use and delivers time to value much faster for commercial because there's not as much, uh, as many layers you need to worry about, such as where you deploy, who you deploy, the data privacy concerns, infrastructure, et cetera. So I think where the, the future I see, which is a different one from you, Albert, is the, these are what I would say friction points. Like I don't think any of these are like full on just stone walls which are blocking their pathway to growth. Like I think there are futures where they, they just sort of slowly ramp up and then they keep going, super successful company. What I see as the more likely future though is that the onboarding time to get these new customers to convince them that they've got a particular need which they can service and fulfill and then actually integrating with those clients is just going to be a little bit longer than what is ideal. And in that sort of slowness to ramp up, I do think that there's a growing cohort of new artificial intelligence AI sort of startups who are going to be able to fulfill some of these niches just more quickly, more dynamically. They're not going to have some of the client conflicts that uh, Palantir might have, Albert, like we talked about with some of these government agencies, particularly in America. Guess what? You're not going to be able to service government agencies in other parts of the world because of that conflict. So I see like this nimble, new, young startup company coming in and being able to disrupt their sort of ideal marketplace, the ideal amount of customers that they could have. And I see this happening sort of more often than not. I feel like I can see these competitors come through. And I mean, when we talk about Nuix Alba, which is an Australian provider, you could really say somewhat of a similar uh, product. What's to stop some of these other players in other parts of the world coming in onto uh, their coming into Palantir's marketplace? I mean, I disagree because, like I said, I said, with any enterprise customer, particularly with a lot of data, there's going to be a really heavy onboarding process. And so if you're a startup and you're really immature and your product's really immature, onboarding a customer and showing time to value is going to be significantly longer than showing time to value for, for Palantir. It's just the nature. I think you're right. But let, let me butt sure. in here with maybe a, a better hypothesis. What if the marketplace starts to fill up with not, you know, not other palantirs, but what if there's a startup which specifically focuses on that, uh, you know, Chase Bank financial services example where the bank just needs a product where it can sort of monitor its employees for potential fraud. And there's this one startup who is, manage to solve that, package it, and then they don't have the same integration, bespoke costs and processes that Nuix have. What if that just starts happening in all these different industries that, that Palantir is trying to play in? Essentially, what I'm asking is, 
Palantir is trying to spread itself across multiple industries. Do you see a world where smaller, nimbler, quicker startups who focus on particular niches beat them out in those particular areas? No, because Palantir are sitting on a billion dollars in cash and on their balance sheet, they've got 11 startups that they've invested in who do a magnitude of different things. So even if Palantir see companies who are moving through different verticals or use cases that they don't currently play in but could, Palantir have already got you know, that covered. They've invested over $100 million in different startups. And so Palantir sitting on a big war chest. They understand where they play. They understand where they could play. Like, yes, there may be a hypothetical startup who can solve a particular use case better than Palantir. But, but right now, Palantir are doing really well from a narrative perspective. The metrics are moving in the right way. And if there are potential, um, you know, disruptors or potential startups who are solving a particular use case, they're not, they, they are investing. And so, um, you know, I'm not too worried about that at all. The, 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 the benefit of being a large public company like Palantir is that when you have competitors, you can just buy them. And that's why it's so important for companies like Palantir to go public when they did, because your use case, your features, once you have more customers, people are going to start talking about them. People are going to start trying to replicate or do small things that you do better to wedge you out of the market in particular places. And you just you can just snap them up. And yeah. I, I, I'm really glad you brought up that now is sort of, well, last year was, was the opportune time for them to go public because you're absolutely right that they were a company surrounded in this sort of mystique. The CEO had said previously, you know, we're probably not the type of company that is going to go public because of the kinds of customers and clients that we have. Obviously, they've done a 180 on that position. And I see that as being driven by this push towards more commercial clients being a, a public company it really helps with that sales pitch, as you said, Albert. It gets their technology, their product out there, and, and people can start really taking note of it. The other thing that does, though, Albert, and I want to sort of pick up a point I, I mentioned earlier on, which is like, do you think that they're still going to get the talent that they could? I mean, I, I've seen some uh, analysts just sort of talking about the traditional Silicon Valley pipeline of tech engineers doesn't necessarily align with what we might call the values of this particular company, Albert. So there's, it's a two-way street of being more out there, more public, is you know their client list is much more accessible now. People understand the work they kind of do. And there is some work which they do which is dis distasteful. And there have been tech companies, so Amazon, Google, each of them to different degrees, have actually dropped clients, government clients, when they've been associated with particular products like these um, immigration and customs uh, situations. I think Amazon stopped hosting the web servers of, of particular government agencies being part of that. And that's mainly just because their employees were really, really vocal about them not wanting to have anything to do with that. Do you see that as a risk at all? Yeah, huge risk. I don't, I don't think Palantir is like the company at the top of every engineer's mine. If you're like a data engineer or you're deep in machine learning, you probably would want to work for Palantir. They've got kind of cutting edge AI and ML. You know, we didn't go through this in the um, product part, but they have what they call a, a dynamic ontology, which when you're trying to train models, it's one way. It's like, this is Dan. 
and he likes XYZ. And then if you see XYZ linked together as a relationship, it's probably Dan. That's like the basic level of ontologies. Based on these characteristics, you could infer that this is what it is. Then machine learning algorithms take those characteristics to make inferences. But they go both ways, which is like Dan likes XYZ AB, and then it retrains the model to, to add XYZ AB when it was previously trained with XYA. So that they're best in class for dynamic ontology. So if you're trying to attract data scientists, machine learning experts, data engineers, you're probably going to go work for Palantir, but I think you're right. If you're trying to get any other software engineer, when you've got Meta, who's paying three times the market rate for a software engineer, when you've got Amazon paying, you know, two or three times, when you've got Apple, et cetera, like it's going to be really hard to compete from a salary perspective, but also from a values perspective. And I think that's really understated. So it's a good point. I'll just sort of leave that point with a a quote from their CEO, no less, which is, our company was founded in Silicon Valley, but we seem to share fewer and fewer of the technology sector's values and commitments. We have chosen sides and we know that that our partners value our commitment. We stand by them when it is convenient and when it is not. So I think if we just project out, clearly the, the CEO and the company are taking a stance which, you know, they're not going to change their business practices just because of employee sentiment. So it's a good one to call out. Albert, you mentioned that you think the financials are trending in the right way. Do you want to hit on that quickly? Yeah, so Palantir, they're kind of FY22 performance so far. They're generating about $1.1 bill in context last year across the entire financial year that they generated um, one bill. So they are on track for about... 40% year-on-year growth by the end of this year, which is, I think is a great result. Um, you know, especially over the previous years, they've been tracking around that way. They've expanded uh, to over 200 customers now, where previously they had, well, 136. So also growing pretty well. Um, their margins are relatively strong. They are quite unprofitable. And when I say quite, extremely unprofitable. And, and <laughs> Thank you. Part, part of that is driven by the cost of going public, in the previous year. Um, but even when you look at 18 and 19, um, they are still widely unprofitable. And part of that is due to kind of the heavy sales lift and investment that's required in trying to get some of these customers. So if you're trying to project out um, Palantir's potential free cash flow in the future, you, you'd want to hope that you can really scale down your sales and marketing cost as you acquire more customers profitably and Palantir have shown to do that. So uh, it's probably a long way away, but for Palantir, I do believe it can happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, it stood out to me that their sort of net income over those years was minus uh, half a billion dollars. It just sort of goes to the point where uh, the more I've hung out with you, Albert, the more I've come around to this idea of profitability in companies a bit overrated, particularly when you look at tech, but for me, like when I'm looking at the narrative and squaring it to the numbers, that's where my sort of thesis comes out, which is they're, they're putting a lot of money into sales. They're putting a lot of money into development of their product. And it just seems to be going slowly. And at some point, you can't just have loss after loss after loss. The sales gears really have to start turning. And I'm just wondering how long that runway is and whether they can sustain themselves until then. And I think my my thesis has concluded 
Probably not. If I think there's going to be competitors that really start causing problems for them and preventing them from ramping up, that's how I see this sort of financial situation spiraling down, even if at the moment they're, they're trending in the right direction. Yeah, I think the problem though is I don't think competitors are the lens you need to view Palantir as a business because your competitors, Palantir's competitors, are competing against free. So Palantir are offering to provide what they do for free to show the value for a customer and then charge. If you're a startup, you can't offer what you do for free because if you don't have, you know, if you've got limited funding or you're bootstrapped, you don't have revenue come in. You can't, you can't spend two, three months implementing software for a customer to show them how it works in the hopes that you can score a long-term deal. And so that's the value that Palantir bring is not only do they have a superior product, they force everyone to compete with free. And if there is a, there is a good competitor, they're investing in that. So that's, that's one. And then to widen that, to actually work with government is really hard, like as a software vendor. there's so many hoops you need to move through, which is why enterprise government sales take so long. You need to show that you've got the right data protections, certification, cybersecurity. Like if you think about how much data Palantir use, like there is so much certification behind that that they need to worry about. Not only that, they deploy on-prem. So they need to go there and actually install the software on government infrastructure. They can't just deploy from cloud which also adds another layer because startups can't afford to send people to deploy on-prem. And so Palantir have got a twofold model that effectively blocks out competitors because of their sales pipeline and because of, you know, how hard it is to work with government. I I do find that attractive. I I think we earlier, I'm not sure we said it on the recording, but before recording, we were sort of saying the moat for Palantir is not the product, it's the client relationships that they have. That being said, part of the product does have some stickiness where if you're installing things on-prem, if you're spending six months plus to like train staff on how to use a particular platform, when that five-year contract comes up for renewal, it's, it's kind of rare for the government agency to be like, no, let's go with a completely new provider. We'll, we'll cop the retraining costs for our staff, the, the interruption to services, particularly if they're critical services like some of the ones we're talking about. That really does tend in Palantir's favor towards stickiness of their customer profile. Um, I've got somewhat of a trick question for you, Albert. Do you think they need more products so they've got gotham they've got foundry uh should they expand into other particular products you mentioned they acquired some companies do you have a view on that yeah i don't think so like ultimately the core of their product is that they are looking to uh and when you say your new product like a completely standalone product right not like enhancements to an existing solution that they've developed so well, so the reason was somewhat of a trick question. So I was, I was trying to trap you into, they did attempt to launch a platform called Metropolis, which would sort of be a, a, along with Gotham and Foundry. And it was particularly to help hedge funds with trading and spotting patterns in the market. So essentially it was a financial services product. Didn't succeed because hedge funds already either had AI tools that were cheaper or they could find AI tools that were cheaper. And so the product just didn't really get off the ground. That in a nutshell is part of my concern for Palantir is 
that happened to a product which you know didn't get off the ground. What if that's the future of Gotham and Foundry? But you, I know you've already answered those points. I think yeah, the hedge fund stuff to, to me, I don't, I don't know why you try into that because hedge funds already build their own bespoke models for their own purposes, and hedge funds are highly mature data organizations. Like they, they thrive on like being able to spot patterns faster than anyone else. And so they train all their own models. But if you're a, a company like, you know, Ferrari or a government organization and you don't have the capabilities or you're really immature from a data perspective, you're going to leverage Palantir. And so, you know, it makes sense as to why it failed. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point. Do you have anything else you wanted to hit before we finish up, Albert? I think the other thing is they've, they have actually launched Apollo, which is kind of their back-end product. It's not really something people talk about a lot, but it's a continuous uh, deployment and integration product. So if you've got um, on-prem software, you actually have to go and install it there. And that's like how on-prem works. If you've got SaaS software, you can just continuously deploy updates. They've got Apollo, which enables them to do um, continuous deployment, even on-prem through kind of an abstracted infrastructure layer. And again, that's just another competitive advantage for Palantir, which is even if it's on-prem, they can still maintain the features, security, which enables them to scale. Like if they had people going to every single government organization to upgrade Palantir, the software Gotham, every time it needed to be upgraded, which would be like one or two days, like that is a lot of work. And so Apollo is the, the first step in helping them scale. I think the other thing we haven't yet talked about, which I just want to quickly hit on is that they are moving to on edge. So I think we've talked about AI on the edge before, which is really difficult to do. And now Palantir are investing in that. So if I project into the future, if Palantir can hit AI on the edge, particularly for insights and analysis, then I think that's kind of the next big growth lever for Palantir. Just hitting on that Apollo approach, I think what I've read about it, it's quite similar to the technology which Tesla uses to upgrade the software for its vehicles. They don't wait, for instance, for you as a driver to go in to a service to have a software update. They're able to send through updates to the system you know, as you connect it to the home Wi-Fi or whatever else. And that's a sort of a similar thing that you're talking about here with Apollo, isn't it, Albert, that... They can send out these updates. They don't have to have someone come in and actually install and work through them. Yeah, it's it's a. I guess it's it's hard to really picture because it's almost like SaaS, but it's like an obfuscated uh, infrastructure layer that lets you deploy securely. Hmm. All right, Albert. Final verdict. I like Palantir. They're doing the right things. Um, you know, I'm I'm not an investor, but I'm looking at their very attractive 16x multiple um, and seeing, you know, almost 50%, 40% revenue growth. Um, so, you know, attractive business, they can be profitable. I'm, I'm sure um, Palantir has a good growth story in the next couple of years. Uh, yeah, I think I've come around a little bit more to them. It's still not the type of company I'd sort of want to invest in. I don't think, I, I don't really believe that the product can keep it ahead of its competitors. And maybe the core of what I've been talking about is I also don't trust that their strategy and their execution can keep them ahead of competitors either. I feel like they're not maybe as focused as they could be on a particular client type. They're focused in on 
Uh, government, obviously, that's a plus. But then the commercial block, which is, I think, is about, what, 45% of their revenue, I haven't seen much distinction or shape uh, coming to that particular block yet, which would give me a bit more confidence to project out into the future. Um, interesting that you mentioned their uh, sort of forward projections of being about a 16x multiple. A competitor that we didn't get into is Snowflake, which is a software that allows organizations to manage and analyze large quantities of data on the cloud. And so they're particularly good at just plugging into public clouds like Amazon's AWS, like Azure, et cetera. And they're projected out at like 120x forward revenues. So they've got a huge multiple compared to Palantir. And that's because of the point which I've sort of keep circling around is they've just been hyperscaling. Like they can just pick up extra clients because they plug into some of these cloud infrastructures. And maybe after talking to you, Albert, I'm just got, I've got the wrong hat on. Palantir maybe has more stable customers, which are slower to, to bring on. And maybe Snowflake in that sense isn't the perfect comparison because their business model lends itself to much quicker scaling, much quicker onboarding of, of customers. Yeah, they're also two completely different products. I probably even wouldn't call them competitors. Like Snowflake is a data lake product that compiles all the different data sources so that you can do analysis. Whereas, you know, Palantir is effectively a data analysis tool. Snowflake is like the step before Palantir. Sounds exactly the same to me, Albert. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you've got if you've got data in A, B, C, D, E, F, G locations, Snowflake puts all that data into one location. That, that's all. That's and all. Then, it does. And it, Palantir. It's like a database. Analyzes the data. Yeah. Yes. But Palantir also builds database because you need to build a database. But the database itself is not of a competitive moat. Like there's there's so many database companies. Like, well, we're probably using SQL, which is Microsoft. Like, they're completely different companies. I would say Palantir's, like, serious competitors would be, like, other dashboarding tools like Alteryx, Splunk, Bespoke Tools, Tableau, consulting firms who will do this and give you a PowerPoint instead of a piece of software. All right, Alvin, let's finish up there. Thank you for listening to Fresh Capital, a podcast about companies and investing taught in a refreshingly simple way. Remember, rate the pod. You know, if you haven't already, give us a five-star rating on Apple iTunes, on Spotify, wherever you listen. Catch you next week.